0: Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning, church. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, we'll have the the Scripture up on the screen as well. Uh, But as you are turning there, I want you guys to think about your image And I want you to think about your identity, okay? Think about your image and think about your identity. Now, it might be helpful to understand both of those terms by kind of distinguishing between the two. What I mean by when I say your identity and what I mean when I say your image. So first, let's talk about identity. So for your understanding this morning of your identity, I want you to understand your identity as something that has been given to you. Okay, something that you have received that is a part of who you are, okay? Your identity is something that you haven't worked for or created, and it is something that has been given to you that is a part of who you are. So, for example, I am a six-foot-one male, okay? Okay. I didn't do anything to become that, all right? That was just given to me. That's not something I worked for to accomplish. That is just something that is a part of who I am, okay? Uh, I have blue eyes. I have blonde hair. I was born into the walker family, so I am a walker, okay? So these are all a part of my identity. I, I didn't do anything to create those for myself. Uh, this is my natural hair color, okay? I, di- I didn't put colored contacts in. These are things that I have not worked for they just are a part of who I am things that I have received so that's that's our identity okay something that is a part of who you are your image is different from your identity in that your image is something you create and something that you it's it's how you want others to see yourself okay that's more your image when we talk this morning and if we could be honest, we spend a lot of time each day ta- uh, working on our image, right? Whether it's uh, picking out the clothes we're going to wear, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, if you wear makeup or you fix your hair in the morning or you look, uh, take a look at yourself in the mirror before you go out into public, you work on how to make your image acceptable, how you want others to see yourself when you go out. You want your image to be good. And some of us, we get obsessed uh, with our image, okay? We spend countless hours maybe in the gym working on our body image so that we will appear to be our, our physical best. Or, or maybe for you, maybe it's not your body image, your physical image that you work on, but maybe it's your intellect and your knowledge, so you really want to be very well read. You want, you want to know a lot about everything so that you can appear knowledgeable to people. You want your image to appear like you know what you're talking about, that you are a knowledgeable person. Or maybe you get uh, really obsessed with your career. You work really hard, get obsessed with your career so that you can have the most money that, that you could imagine, so that you could have the highest title imaginable, so that you appear successful to other people. And if we are honest, most of our life is spent working on our image, our image, working on how we will appear to other people. And this is so important to us as human beings because we want to be seen as successful, attractive, and knowledgeable. Why? Why do we want this so bad? It's because we want to be accepted and we want to be approved. And I'm not just talking about people with daddy issues whose dads never affirmed them and so they worked their whole life to try to earn his approval, okay? I'm not just talking about that. I think all of us We have this desire as human beings. We want to be deserving of acceptance. We want to be accepted. We want to be approved. And so we work on our image. And then when our image gets ruined or messed up or tarnished somehow, we're devastated by it. We're devastated by it. You've maybe heard of the fighter um, and actress and now celebrity, Ronda Rousey, okay? Uh, She fights mixed martial arts, and a few years ago, she was definitely one of the big names. Sports Illustrated, even more so, had named her the world's most dominant athlete. The world's most dominant athlete. That is quite a title. They don't hand that out uh, very often, okay? The world's most dominant athlete. Here's, Here's some of her resume. She was the first U.S. woman to ever win an Olympic medal in judo. She was the youngest girl ever to qualify for the Olympics at age 14. She consistently was one of the top three ranked judo champions in the world. She then transitioned into mixed martial arts, okay, where she dominated. And going into November 2015, she was 12 and 0, with only one opponent that had even survived the first round. Eight of her 12 opponents she defeated in less than a minute, okay? You do not want to pick a fight with Ronda Rousey, okay? Um, But then, then in November 2015, something happened. She lost. She lost. And in an interview shortly after the loss, she said this, and I quote, She said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. At that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one cares about me anymore without this. You see, she had wrapped her identity, who she was, she had wrapped it up in her image as being the most dominant athlete in the world. And then without that image, Without the image she had worked so hard for, if she didn't have that image of being the most dominant athlete in the world, then she thought she was nothing. Who would want her? Who would accept her? Who would love her if her image that she had worked so hard for was ruined? And church, many of us feel this way too. We work so hard for a certain image, a way we want people to see us, so that we will be accepted and approved. And church, this morning we are going to see that wanting to be accepted is not a bad thing, but it was ultimately meant to lead us to find our acceptance in Christ. And our ultimate need is not to have a better image, but it is to have a new identity. We were born in sin we were born with the identity, and the identity that was given to us was that of sinner. But Christ came to save us so that he could give us a new identity, which is that of righteous. And in our passage, we're going to see Jesus call the undeserving. We're going to see him welcome in the outcast. We're going to see him accept the unacceptable. And then he's going to show us that we do not need to have a better image. We need to have a new identity. And we'll see in Christ, we no longer have to live for our acceptance. But we now have the joy of living from the acceptance that we have in him. So let's go. Mark 2, verse 13. If you're there, let's uh, look, at, look at it with me here. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. He's uh, the crowds are once again flocking to him. He's teaching them, and then he passes by the tax booth and sees Levi. Now, Levi, who is also called Matthew, would go on to be one of the twelve apostles and write the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, but before he was a follower of Christ, before he was an apostle, he was a tax collector. And here we see Jesus, as he often does, he calls the unlikely and the undeserving to follow him. Jesus loves to do this. He loves to call the unlikely and the undeserving to follow him. You see, tax collectors were not very well thought of in that day, okay? Think of them like corrupt, greedy IRS agents. All right. Tax collectors who then were Jews were viewed by the Jewish people as traitors because they were collecting taxes for the Romans. And many times they would overcharge people so that they could take the extra for themselves and get rich. You can imagine this did not make them very popular amongst the people. And so much so that they were excluded from many social and religious activities. They were even excluded from the synagogue. So think of the synagogue as kind of what you think of a Sunday morning church service here. The synagogue was the gathering place for God's people to hear God's word taught and hear it read. Tax collectors were excluded from the synagogue merely because they were tax collectors. Their acceptance and approval ratings were not very good. And they did not have a great image. And so it is interesting, to say the least, that Jesus calls Levi to follow him. He's clearly not going after the most popular or the most deserving or the one with the best image, right? I mean, he's calling an undeserving outcast who was hated and expelled by the people and not even allowed in their religious gatherings. What makes this even better is that he is a tax collector along the Sea of Galilee. And so he was likely the tax collector that was taxing the fishermen on their income from their fish, which ended up being a lot of the disciples are fishermen, right? And so I'm sure Peter, Andrew, James, and John are like, really, this guy? Jesus, you're adding this guy to the team? He's been ripping us off for years and stealing our money? You're adding this guy to our team? But like Jesus does over and over, and even today, he shows unmerited favor. He shows grace. And he calls the undeserving to follow him. And look how Levi responds when encountered with the grace and favor of Jesus. He rose and he followed him. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus calls Levi to follow him, and then Jesus goes to Levi's house and shares a meal with Levi's friends and co-workers. Here is Jesus and his disciples with Levi, the hated tax collector, the outcast. And he's sitting down and having a meal with him and enjoying time with him. And look who else Mark says is with them. He says, many tax collectors and sinners. Well, let's talk for a second about who are the sinners. Are these just the really, really bad people? Are these just the, the, the criminals and the ones that are just despised by society? Is that who sinners are? Well, the Pharisees, they're about to actually ask the disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what they mean is, why does Jesus eat with people who don't follow the law of God? Why does Jesus eat with people who don't follow the law of God, who don't read and obey the Torah, right? The first five books of the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to show them that their view of sinners is correct, however much too narrow. Because there is no one who perfectly follows the law of God. And Paul helps us in the book of Romans see this as well. So hold your spot here in Mark and flip a few books to to the right to the book of Romans in chapter 3. You see, the Pharisees' definition of sinners was correct in thinking that sinners are people who don't follow the law of God but Paul is going to show us that their view is so narrow because that is everyone. No one perfectly follows the law of God. All humanity is a sinner and a lawbreaker apart from Christ, and therefore everyone has been born with the identity of sinner. Sinner. So Romans 3, verse 9, it says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. Both Jews and Greeks. That's all of us. We are all under sin. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Well, you might say, how can this be true? I do good things every day. There are nice people all over the world, many of them that aren't Christians, that they do kind, nice, good things. They take care of orphans. They heal the sick. They they help the poor. How can Paul say no one does good? Well, yes, you see, we can perform acts of kindness and not follow Jesus. There are many non-Christians that are very kind, generous, caring people. But these are not righteous acts because while we are under sin, which we are all born under sin, while we are under sin, our acts of kindness are not done for the glory of God. And therefore, they fall short of the glory of God. They are done either for our own glory or for the glory of humanity. Therefore, Paul can say, under sin, no one is righteous, no one does good. Skip ahead to verse 20, Romans 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Church, we were all at one point under sin, we were all sinners. And so we can praise God that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Levi wasn't even in the crowd trying to listen to Jesus. Levi was minding his own business, making big money, doing his own thing, not caring about the things of God. He was not deserving of the call to follow. But praise God that Jesus didn't come to save the good. He didn't come to save the nice, the polite, the religious, or the popular. Jesus came to save sinners. And we can all echo the Apostle Paul who said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We must understand first that we were all under sin. Our identity was that of sinners. But we are justified. We are given a new identity. We are made righteous. And we are accepted by his grace as a gift. So praise God that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Because before faith in Christ, that was all of us. Look back now at Mark. Look back at Mark. So far, we've seen Jesus call the undeserving. He's offered friendship to the outcast. And now look at Mark 2, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees were a group of Jews that were crazy strict about following the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes called the Law of Moses, and so much so that they would actually then make extra biblical rules to try to kind of fence and guard so they wouldn't actually break the law of God. So for example, if it said, only take this many steps on the Sabbath, they would make up an extra biblical rule that said, no, don't take this many so you don't even get close to breaking the law of God, okay? Okay. Now, Pharisees, we usually think of them in a kind, of, kind of poorly. We don't really view that word as a, as a good thing. Um, if you haven't grown up in church, if someone calls you a Pharisee, they're kind of dissing you without really dissing you. So just be aware of that. Pharisee, we don't usually think of that in a good way. Uh, but I'm going to sympathize with them a little bit this morning, because in the end, these are people just like you and me, just like the rest of humanity, who want to be accepted and approved. They want to be accepted and approved, but instead of seeing their need for a new identity, which Jesus continually tries to help them see that need, instead of seeing the need for a new identity, they only want to work on their image. They only want to work on their image. And so here we have the law. They then add even more rules to it so that they will appear good, so that their image will be good, so that they can be accepted and approved by being a part of this group. But Jesus in his ministry here on earth is constantly trying to open their eyes to the fact that they have been ignoring their hearts. They have been so focused on their image and their outward external actions that they have been blind to the fact that their hearts are sick and full of sin. They have focused on their image, but they have ignored their identity. But let's not act like the Pharisees are the only ones who do this, okay? Who create a system or a sect of people with a certain image and certain outward appearance that they can meet, that they can find acceptance or approval in. Okay, Go to any high school and you could find this as well. So if high school is still what it, what it was like when I was there, all right, this is how it plays out. You will find all these different groups and cliques that form that have their own kind of image that people can find approval and acceptance in. OK, so all the smart kids, right, they kind of form their honors class click and and they can find acceptance in that group by having really good grades or really good SAT scores or being in honors classes, filling out college uh, applications. They can find approval in that group or maybe all the athletic kids. They can find acceptance and approval in the jock group by making a certain team or performing well in sports. They can find acceptance and approval in that group. And maybe the unathletic kids who want to be athletic, they can find acceptance and approval on like the soccer team or something like that, right? Okay, that was sort of at the parries. I'm sorry. I just, I was never good at soccer, so I will always make fun of it, okay? All right, all right, I was never good at it, okay. Uh, but then you've got, like, the musically gifted kids, right? They can find acceptance and approval in the band or in the choir, and then all the kids that don't want to be in a clique, that don't want to say, I have to be accepted, they kind of form their own other group, which is kind of like the, the skaters, goth kids, right? And they say, hey, we're, we're going to be anti-establishment, we're not going to dress like everyone else, and they end up then dressing kind of all the same, right? And then they, so in that, uh, that attempt to try to say, hey, we don't need to be accepted, they now have kind of found acceptance in that group uh, themselves right and so my point is that the pharisees are not the only ones who do this okay who try to create an image for themselves try to put a system into place that they can find their acceptance and approval now here's the hard part to grapple with in this passage church we can tend to be like the pharisees We can. We can lean towards being like the Pharisees in this story. But the good news, the good news is that we are being made more and more like Jesus. And so for a few minutes, I want to ask the questions, how are we like the Pharisees in this story? And how can we follow the example of Jesus? Okay? Well, first, how are we like the Pharisees in this story? We, like the Pharisees, can easily get this us-versus-them mentality. We get this us-good-church-religious people and them being those, those people out there. And I'm not just talking about this side of the room, okay? I'm talking about outside the church walls, outside the Cinco de Modo billboard, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. But we get this mindset, right? This kind of us versus them. Like we need to guard ourselves, shelter ourselves against them. We need to stay this kind of clean, good church people so we can be accepted as good, clean Christian church people, right? We get an us versus them mentality. But Romans 3, Romans 3, which we've already looked at, should totally disconstruct this line of thinking, Because we know that we were all under sin apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are all sinners. There's not good people and bad people in the world. There are sinners that are still in sin, and there are sinners who have been redeemed by Christ and are now saints. But there's not good and bad people in the world. There are sinners still in sin, and there are sinners who have been redeemed by Christ and are now saints. When Christ redeems us and we are united with him, we no longer identify as sinners but now as saints because of our union with Christ. But let us not forget the state of our heart before Christ saved us. Now let me give you a warning of what makes us prone to develop this us-versus-them mentality. We are prone to developing this mentality when we spend more time talking about God than we do with God. We are prone to developing this us versus them mentality when we spend more time talking about God than we do with God. Now listen, it's not bad to talk about God I love talking about God, but if you talk about God more than you talk with God, your walk with Christ is going to get really weird and distorted, okay? You're going to be prone, if you talk more about God than you actually do with God in prayer and in his word, you're going to be prone to become a prideful, arrogant, hard-hearted person who doesn't love God or people very well at all. We must grow in our knowledge of God, yes. But we also must grow in our experience of God through prayer and through his word. And that will deconstruct this us versus them mentality. If you pray, if you pray to God about the loss. If you pray to God about your neighbors and family and friends who don't know Him, if you plead with Him on their behalf, you watch what God will do. He will remove the us versus them mentality from your heart and He will replace it with a I must go to them mentality. He takes out the us versus them and He replaces it with a I must go to them. But be careful talking with God and God flipping that in our hearts, you be careful. That's what makes people move to Uganda. That's what makes people plant a church in Franklin. Stuff happens when you talk with God. It doesn't lead to a boring, safe life. So you've been warned. Well, how else are we like the Pharisees in this story? We, like the Pharisees, we think changing behavior will change our hearts. We think improving our, uh, excuse me, we think improving our image will change our identity. We think if we can clean up our external behaviors and help others do the same, then we will be accepted by God and we will have clean hearts. And so this is the aim of most religions. It is a clean yourself up, get a better image and God will accept you. And it doesn't initially sound all that bad, but the Bible would say false. The Bible says your external actions flow out of a heart that is under sin. You don't need better behavior, you need a new heart. You need to be saved by Jesus. You need to be given a new heart. You need to be justified and accepted by God's grace through faith so that you no longer have to worry and strive and toil for trying to earn your acceptance. But you can instead live in the joy and freedom of living from the acceptance you've already had in Christ. But no, we like the Pharisees, we we are surprised that people under sin love and live in sin, right? Can we please stop being surprised that our culture and our world and those that don't love God, can we please stop being surprised that they don't follow God's word? Can we please stop being offended that people with sinful hearts, which we all had at some point, commit sinful actions? They don't ultimately need our judgment or correction. They need to hear the good news that Jesus saves. They need new hearts. They need to hear the gospel. Well, how else are we like the Pharisees in this story? We, like the Pharisees, we are afraid that our acceptance or friendship of a non Christian will be perceived as us approving of their lifestyle. We are. We're afraid to be friends with non-believers because we're afraid it's going to be perceived like we approve of everything they do in life. We think, well, I can't hang out with them or else they will think that I approve of how they're living. When you think this way, this is you thinking more of the image you've created for yourself as a Christian Like, what will my other church friends or church people think of me hanging out with these people or eating dinner with them? How will this be perceived? How will they view me and my friendship towards this person? The Pharisees cannot believe what Jesus is doing. Eating with tax collectors and sinners, this was not good for his image. Isn't Jesus worried that the tax collectors and sinners will take his friendship to mean that he approves of all their their greedy and deceptive tactics as tax collectors? But Paul gives us some insight in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, into who we should associate and who we should not associate with. And so just hear these words. We don't have time to turn there. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? Paul's saying don't disassociate from unbelievers and judge their actions. Leave that to God. Like, that's not your role. We are to call out those who are in Christ in the church, if they're calling themselves a Christian. Yes, we are to lovingly confront people who continue to live in sin if they're saying they follow Christ. But the unbelievers, that's that's not our job. As those people who were once sinners that Jesus befriended us, we can follow Jesus' example and be a friend to sinners. We can accept them as friends. We can love them and not worry about our image, how it is being perceived, because we ultimately want them to find their acceptance in Christ. And he's the one who will make them a new creation and give them a new identity. Church, what a lie it is that has kept many of us from loving our neighbors well. This worry that we have that our friendship is going to be perceived as us approving of everything they do. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Not meaning he approves of their sin, but he's pursuing their friendship and sharing meals with them. He's not living for a certain image. He's living from his identity as the savior of the world. And so we don't need to live for a certain image either. We can live from our new identity that is in Christ. And as Christ was a friend to sinners, we should be as well. That leads us into the question, how can we follow the example of Jesus? How can we follow the example of Jesus? Well, we've sort of answered it some, but we should be friends with people that aren't following Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We should be as well. Let me ask you, who have you had over for dinner the last couple of months? I just want you to think about this. Who have you had over for dinner in the last couple of months? Now, certainly, Christian fellowship is important. You should be having uh, your church family, you should be having other brothers and sisters into your home, spending time with them. Please be doing that. That is a good thing. We most definitely need that. But do you also have friends that don't know Jesus? And are you inviting them over for meals? Something beautiful does happen when you get together with people and you eat food. I can't explain it, I don't know why. But it it happens. Something beautiful happens when you get together with someone and you eat food. The Bible speaks so highly of this, not only in Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, but it also designates this as a qualification for an elder. Now, I know not everyone in here will be a pastor or an elder, but nonetheless, the qualifications of an elder should be something that we are all striving for, something that we all desire to see develop in our lives. And both in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, we see one of the qualifications as being hospitable. Hospitable. Now, contrary to popular belief, being hospitable does not mean having your best friends over to eat your favorite food to play your favorite game, okay? Now, that's fine to do that, but don't think that is you being hospitable. When the Bible uses the word hospitality, it means the love of strangers, the love of strangers. It means making place in your life for the outsider. Making place in your life for the outsider. Whether that's making place for them in your home, whether that means making place for them in your schedule, whether that means making place for them in your gathering of other believers, followers of Jesus are to be hospitable. And so even having something like a hospitality team at church is actually a biblical concept. Now, it's not for the purpose of catering to Christian comforts. It's for the purpose of welcoming in the outsider as Jesus welcomed us. And so Dad and I, as your pastors and elders, we should be hospitable. We should be making room in our lives and in our schedules for those that don't know Jesus. But let me ask you this. To think about and ponder and pray about how's your hospitality how are you welcoming in the outsider how are you making room in your life for those that don't know jesus we probably all need to repent we probably all need to ask jesus to help us be more hospitable and ask him to, for to help us be better friends to unbelievers. Now the ultimate solution to us not being like the Pharisees and being more like Jesus is not to just try harder to be more like Jesus. I do not believe me just guilting you into being friends with unbelievers will have any lasting effect. No, for us the lasting change will come from being reminded over and over and over again of the gospel We need to be reminded over and over and over again that the ultimate solution to being accepted by God is not to just try harder to be accepted. The ultimate solution is to remember your ultimate problem. You are a sinner. You were a sinner. You need a new identity. But here's the good news. This is the heart of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... He made him, speaking of Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Levi knew he was a sinner. He knew he was sick. He knew he had a problem. He knew he didn't just need a better image. He needed a new identity. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were so preoccupied with their image and external actions that they didn't realize they had the same problem of sin that the tax collectors had. But what's beautiful about the Word of God is that it reveals and exposes our sin-sick souls so that we can be saved and healed by Jesus. So there was a day I was working in the ER, this was a couple of uh, years ago, and I picked up a patient whose chief complaint was bee sting. Okay, bee sting. I thought, oh, this is going to be an easy patient, you know? Uh, just kind of take a look, make sure they're not having a really bad reaction, give them an ice pack, you know, some antibiotic ointment, we'll send them out the door, right? And so the nurses, because this really wasn't a serious complaint, the, the patient got placed way, way, way in the back of the ER. You had to walk like a mile to get there, and it was like in a dark corner. And, and so if you're ever at a hospital and they walk you way far away, that means they're not really that concerned about you, okay? Just some insight. So this patient was way down at the end of the ER, Right, kind of in the dark corner. You weren't even sure if it was an actual room. And you, I, I walked in and kind of asked what had happened. And she said she had walked into someone's house and felt something sting her on the abdomen. Okay. And I say, okay, well, can I see where you got stung? And she shows her abdomen. And, and I, I step away and kind of like uh, uh, think for a second. And I step back in. I'm like, hey, can I, can I look just a little bit? closer at that, you've got me a little bit more interested. So I'm like looking, I kind of, hey, can I look at your back here too? I say, okay, okay. And so I calmly just kind of back out of the room, trying to remain calm. I grab a bed and a cart, and I wheel it into the room like, hey, can you get on this bed for me? No big deal. I just kind of need you to get on this bed. I kind of put up the side rails. I back her out of this room. And then I just start, like, kind of walking really quickly down the hallway, okay? And, And I tell the nurse, okay, call up to the shock rooms. I'm bringing a gunshot wound to the abdomen up to the shock rooms, all right? You see, she did get stung by something. It just wasn't a bee, all right? Bee stings usually do not have entry and exit wounds, all right? Just to make sure, that's kind of a free lesson right there. Um, Yeah, (laughs) usually don't have entry and exit wounds. So this lady, probably at the front desk, was trying to avoid police, kind of avoid the commotion. She was trying to just kind of get in to get the care that she needed. But by saying that it was just a bee sting because she didn't want to make it a big deal, because she wanted to keep her image okay and not alert the police, she got put back into a room where we could really not help her at all. We had no tools or anything in that room to give her the healing that she needed. It wasn't until the actual problem was exposed that it could be dealt with and healed. You see, the reason that we are not hospitable the reason we are not a friend to the lost, the reason we are tempted to become more like the Pharisees rather than Jesus, is because we think Jesus just saved us from a bee sting. Like, in our sin, we weren't really that bad, right? I mean, it was just like a little sting on the skin, you know, just give me a little antibiotic ointment, Jesus, I'll be okay, I'm really not that bad of a person, right? Right? We, we view Jesus, yes, as saving us from sin, but, you know, it wasn't that bad of sin compared to everyone else. We just needed a little help kind of covering up this thing on our abdomen. And people go to church their whole life, and in an attempt to protect their image, they never actually deal with the problem of their identity, which is sinner. They never confess or repent of sin to their church Because they want to keep up this image of being a good person. Listen, your sin will never surprise me. You don't need to hide here. You don't need to put a mask on here. You don't need to put up this good kind of church person, religious front here. I know your sin is bad. I know we talk a lot like we confess into one another. Hey, it's not that bad. Our sin is bad. Do you know why why I know our sin is bad? Our sin is so awful that it took Jesus dying on a cross for it. Jesus did not just save you from a bee sting. He saved you from a gunshot wound to the abdomen. You were bleeding out. In your sin, you had a life-threatening condition. And only Jesus could fix it. You were totally undeserving of his grace. You were totally undeserving of his acceptance. You were putting up a good image and appearance, and you were, you were living like it wasn't that big of a deal, but you were dead in your sin. But then when the word of God is proclaimed, that is when the fatal wound is exposed. When the gospel is preached, is when the identity of sinner is brought to light, and that's when the problem can be dealt with. And so we run to the cross, because it is at the cross that Jesus took our identity as sinners, and he gave us his identity as righteous. And so the gospel then frees us to live in real community with one another. To confess sin to one another, to really know one another, to welcome in the outsider, to be friends with those that don't know Jesus. Because we are accepted by God solely on the fact that we are in Christ. In Christ, our identity is no longer sinner, it is instead righteous. And in Christ, we no longer have to work for our image but instead, we can be the image bearers of God we were created to be. When you understand your sin was not a beast thing, but instead a gunshot wound, you will no longer have this us versus them mentality, but instead a I must go to them mentality. And when your faith is in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, and when you realize that you are right before God because you are in Christ, then you will experience the joy and freedom of no longer striving for acceptance, but instead living from the joy of being accepted in Christ. Your desire to be accepted is not a bad thing, but it was ultimately meant to lead you to find your acceptance in Christ.